Hello and welcome to this week's Book Club, the second in our march through the wasteland of COVID-19 and its outcomes, accompanied by a different Shakespeare play each week. I must confess, I thought I had a kind of an attachment to this week's play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. It was the first Shakespeare play I ever saw at Stratford-upon-Avon in the summer of 1991. Almost 30 years later, I still remember sitting up on the highest balcony of the Swan Theatre, peeping down at the elegant stage below. I remember that there was a clown who had a dog, and that by some theatrical magic a working fountain was brought up out of the floor. There was singing, and it was set in the 1930s, and either Julia or Lucetta had broken her leg. And that's about it. Truth be told, I haven't spent much time with the play since then. At grad school, I think I listened to some of the music of the Broadway adaptation from the 1970s with music by the same composer who wrote Hair. I had looked it up because it was written and directed by one of my professors at UCLA. Other than that, dear listener, I confess that I haven't even read the play since then. And what a weird, weird play it is. We don't really have a reliable chronology for Shakespeare's plays, but Two Gentlemen of Verona is most certainly one of Shakespeare's earliest. We'll call it a comedy, because everyone else does, and because this play contains ideas, elements and situations that will reappear in several later, funnier plays. If I was a pushier wordsmith, I'm sure I would have found, or tried to find, a pun along the lines of Two Gentlemen of Corona, but it certainly seems neither necessary nor appropriate. In a nutshell, this play concerns two gentlemen, Proteus and Valentine, from Verona in Italy. Proteus is in love with a girl called Julia, and Valentine is leaving Verona to go see more of the world. So he's going to Milan. In the first of many geographic confusions in Shakespeare, The play starts with Valentine setting sail on a boat between two inland cities in Italy that are not connected by a river, by the way. But so be it. Valentine reaches Milan, or is it Padua? The text is somewhat inconclusive. He falls madly in love with a local beauty called Sylvia, who happens to be the daughter of the Duke. It takes some time, but he manages to get her attention, and eventually she falls in love with him too. Meanwhile, Proteus shows up in Milan, having heard what a good time Valentine has been having. All of a sudden, bang, he's in love with Sylvia too. Poor Julia is still back in Verona, saying terribly nice things about Proteus, until she cooks up a plan to go and see him. Crucially, she decides to dress up as a boy in order to travel safely. Proteus has meanwhile been very busy slandering Valentine to the Duke, so much so that eventually Valentine is banished from Milan. Julia shows up, and somehow she manages to become a go-between, sending messages to Sylvia and back to Proteus. It all comes to a head in the forest outside of Milan, where Valentine has joined a band of outlaws. Proteus has become desperate because Sylvia absolutely refuses to be unfaithful to Valentine. She gives him a pretty satisfying earful for betraying his friend, and then Proteus tries to rape her and he's stopped only at the last moment when Valentine intervenes. Julia has been in the background, and she faints, and as she falls, so does her disguise. Very weirdly, Proteus and Valentine are almost instantly reconciled, and then Valentine essentially offers Sylvia to Proteus for the sake of their friendship. 
Sylvia doesn't get a word in, and the play ends with one feast, one house, one mutual happiness. This is a very troubling situation. No less a critic than Harold Bloom was haunted by the idea that we actually don't understand this play yet. I like this idea a lot more than the kinds of explanations that things were different back then. They were different times, quote-unquote, is never a satisfactory explanation of bad behaviour. I do like to think that Shakespeare was maybe road-testing his ideas in this play, and maybe even having some fun at the kinds of bizarre stories that he might have been reading or seeing on the stage. Apparently, Shakespeare drew on a story by the Portuguese writer Jorge de Montemayor. In his Seven Books of the Diana, there's a comparable story of love letters, disguises, inconstancy and a denouement in the forest. In that version, however, there is no Valentine or Valentine equivalent, and so the Sylvia equivalent simply dies of grief. There's also a source called The History of Felix and Philomena, but tragically that august title is long lost. We do still have Boccaccio's Decameron, from which Shakespeare pulled several stories, in this case the tale of two friends, both in love with a girl called Sophronia. At its end, the friend who was being cheated instantly offers his rakish pal the girl, again for the sake of their friendship. Poor Sophronia and poor Sylvia, both torn between two fools feeling like a lover. We have good reason to believe that around the time that this play came into existence, there was a great deal of literature that celebrated male friendship. Shakespeare might perhaps be skewering these kinds of stories. Invariably, they're about two dear friends who have grown up together and would no doubt die for each other until a woman gets in the way. I can't help but wonder what is going on in Two Gentlemen, though, since the two title twits don't seem to share a redeeming feature between them. Valentine is a nuisance, and he takes so long to get the point that one worries how long he might survive in the wild if he doesn't snag an intelligent and caring wife. And Proteus, well. Proteus is named after a Greek sea god who was notorious for his ability to change his shape. Likewise, Proteus undergoes continuous transformations in the play, each new appearance seeming more unpleasant than the last. He's inconstant, selfish, a terrible friend, a bad improviser, a rotten boyfriend, and a would-be rapist. Interestingly, Shakespeare uses the word metamorphosed twice in the play, having gone through a metamorphosis, or a significant change, and he doesn't use it anywhere else. Comparably, two characters are described as being like a chameleon. Changing appearance is seemingly at the heart of this play. I can think of only one other mention of a chameleon in Shakespeare, and that's in Hamlet, who eats the air, the chameleon's dish. I don't know if Hamlet is a better boyfriend to Ophelia, but he certainly couldn't be worse than Proteus. Poor Julia couldn't be more wrong when she describes him earlier in the play. She says... Truer stars did govern Proteus's birth. His words are bonds, his oaths are oracles, his love sincere, his thoughts immaculate, his tears pure messengers sent from his heart, his heart as far from fraud as heaven from earth. He's none of these things. If anything, I feel like he's a rough sketch for some of the villains Shakespeare would later write, Iago, Don John or even Richard III. Mind you, they all get better parts written for them. The women in the play are considerably more admirable. Sylvia is most impressive when she gets angry at Proteus for his approaches. She's smart and interesting and has one of Shakespeare's most famous songs written about her, Who is Sylvia? 
It's a great pity the play is named after the two gentlemen. Surely this is an ironic title, rather than the two perplexing women who bother with them. Julia is a prototype for many Shakespearean heroines. She is the first to dress up as a boy and go after her love, and she has some very interesting scenes. Her volatile behaviour when she tears up a love letter and then tries to put it back together is always endearing, and when she puts on boy drag and meets Sylvia, trying to describe herself to her beloved's new love interest, is a fascinating web of illusions. In it, we get various references to Christian and ancient Greek martyrs who punish themselves for the sake of those they love, and a good actor can make Julia a real heroine. What's frustrating is that all the love that Julia displays seems utterly wasted on a pig like Proteus. This pearls-before-swine dynamic will also reappear in All's Well That Ends Well, which also features a spirited lady, Helena, who goes on an adventure to find her worthless boyfriend. Soon after Two Gents, Shakespeare wrote A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which another Helena attempts to win the love of yet another brute. At one point she cries... I am your spaniel, and, Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. This echo of the relationship between a dog and an abusive master resonates in Two Gentlemen of Verona. The one genuinely enjoyable character in the play, besides its two mistreated heroines, is the servant Launce, who is accompanied by the most beloved sidekick in all of Shakespeare, the dog Crab. Much of Launce's comedy is derived from his tales of woe concerning his dog, but in his world, it's the dog that abuses him rather than the other way round. Here, poor Lance is beset with an unappreciative dog who shows no affection, no compassion, and doesn't seem at all worthy of the love he bears him. As the play progresses, the parallels between Lance and Julia abound, and we get the sense that she's just as much of a clown or a fool for mooning over a dog like Proteus. By the end of the play, Valentine forgives Proteus even if we don't. There isn't much for either of the girls to say at the end. It's almost as bad as the end of Measure for Measure, wherein various ladies are presented with new husbands without being allowed a word in response. A recent production by Simon Godwin at the Royal Shakespeare Company ended very ambiguously, with Proteus and Julia staring at each other as the lights faded. The behaviour displayed, by Proteus mainly, is so sour, so ungentlemanly, that I have to assume Shakespeare was attempting to comment on something in this play. The only way I can imagine it working on stage is for the two title characters to be mocked throughout, and for it to be a play about how stupid we can be when we're young, and how, if we're lucky, we might be forgiven our transgressions by people who trust that we are better than we seem. Even this sounds more romantic than Proteus deserves, but I confess I am a romantic sometimes. Productions of the play very often drown out its problems with songs and music. That 1991 production had lots of singing, and indeed the Broadway adaptation that I mentioned won several Tonys. Music hath charms to soothe the savage beast, and certainly hath power to make a sour play palatable. Nearly all of Shakespeare's comedies take place outside of England. Very often they're in Italy, which was an appropriately faraway alternative for Elizabethan England. Last time, we talked about how all of Shakespeare's histories were written to question life in Elizabeth's own time. Comparably, the Italy of the comedies is a kind of anti-England, wherein it was safer to discuss social mores without making anything like a direct comment. 
Italy was, after all, staunchly Catholic and provided a lusty, sun-kissed, hot-blooded alternative to the moderation of English Protestantism. Since this week's choice proved so perplexing and even troubling, and not really very funny at all, I'm choosing another comedy for our next instalment. For even more controversy, I reckon we should read The Taming of the Shrew, and this one, unlike the apparent typo in Two Gentlemen, really does take place in Padua. I'll put a link to the full text of the play on the book club page of the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and there you'll also find some further details about this week's play and extras that might be worth a read. I hope you have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.